Hello and welcome to episode 7 of People Behind Politics. Now my guest today is Jenny Simmons. Jenny works in Parliament as a staffer to a Labour MP. Jenny is also the chair of the GMB Union's branch representing parliamentary staff in Westminster. I'm really excited to talk to Jenny today about everything from her background, how she got into working in politics and working in Parliament, the different experiences she's had working for different MPs, and also her work as the chair of the GMB branch, helping to fight for better rights for parliamentary staff. I hope you enjoy this episode and make sure to follow us on all of our social media channels. Enjoy! Jenny Simmons, welcome to People Buying Politics. Hi, thank you for having me. No problem. Thank you for taking the time to join us and um, come along today to chat about your experiences. I mentioned in the introduction um, that you were a senior researcher to a Labour MP and that you're also currently the chair of the GMB branch for member staff in Parliament. And I guess, really, I just want to kick off by asking you how... How it's been during the pandemic? How's how's life been for you as a as a parliamentary staffer? Um, it's been interesting. I suppose I started working parliament um, in 2018, the summer, and then 2019 was completely consumed by Brexit and all the kind of intensity and mm. excitement and chaos of um, that in parliament, and then the general election happened. And then it felt like the general election had barely finished by the time the pandemic started. So it's kind of felt like it's hard to know what what's <laughs> what's normal in Parliament. Like, when is it just a usual working day? Because the pandemic, I think, yeah, has made everything much more complicated in terms of working from home and learning how to do that. That wasn't really a typical thing in Parliament before. Like, for my first MP... I didn't have a laptop, so if I wasn't in the office, I couldn't work. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of been interesting helping, what you know, trying to transition to being able to work remotely. All the work that we do, we basically can do remotely, but MPs a lot of the time like to have their political staff with them um, to speak, you know, to, to chat through things and they find it easier to be there in person. I think the people who found it the hardest have been caseworkers. I'm not a caseworker. I do um, research and things. But for caseworkers, their workload has just exploded yeah. um, during the pandemic because they are trying to be provide like essential services to all their constituents. And, um, and then obviously there have been flare-ups like the Afghanistan crisis or local flooding issues, things like that, which have taken place while the pandemic is still going on. So... For those staff, it's been a really overwhelming time that hasn't really ended because their volume of work is so hard. So I try not to complain too much about <laughs> me sometimes having to work from home or like, you know, minor inconveniences like that. It's not the end of the world. Yeah. Yeah. And, and parliamentary um, and, and constituency caseworkers and casework staff, which you've mentioned there, like you say, it's not a position that I think people in the public even know about a lot of the time or even assume exists because I guess every MP's office is different and 
you'll have interacted with MPs across the political spectrum who, you know, have, you know, a couple of caseworkers who work, you know, full time and are there to help the, the constituents and are accessible and all the rest of it. And then you'll have come across, as, as I did in my time in Parliament, MPs who, who don't have caseworkers or they don't have any staff um, picking up their, you know, inquiries or, you know, mm. maybe they don't even respond to emails. You know, some of them, I think there's there's less than there were previously, but there's still a few who, you know, don't engage in that same way. So caseworkers are definitely one of those things that, you know, they don't, they don't have to be there. They're not a, a mandatory service, but when they are, it often feels like you think, well, who, who was picking this up beforehand? Because yeah. the amount of work that there is for them to do yeah. um, is incredible. There's no like official job description for an MP. They have no particular obligations to their constituents. So, like you say, they don't have they don't have to reply to any emails. They don't have to answer any phone calls. They don't have to hold surgery appointments or even speak in the chamber. You know, there's there's like no <laughs> official requirements. Um, but yeah, when people do have caseworkers, they are worked very hard. And a lot of the time, the public who are dealing with them have no idea that. The, the people behind the work because sometimes in some MPs offices everything will be signed as being from the MP even like yeah, emails exactly. just more like less important emails will still be signed off by the MP so yeah I think a lot of the time people don't know that job exists and it's really undervalued like this is one of the reasons why our branch and the GMB are pushing to have um the pay for caseworkers lifted because at the moment the pay bans mm. for caseworkers are much lower than the pay bans for research staff, which I think is just a kind of indicator of how people see it, how it's seen to be a job that is less important, less valuable, less difficult. And that's complete BS. Like it's such yeah. a difficult job. People are relying on you with their lives. A lot of the time it's enormous pressure on underpaid, sometimes young staff. Um, and I think it's, yeah, it really it does indicate that currently the financial authority maybe the house comes more widely don't really recognize the importance of of caseworkers but they do an amazing job yeah absolutely and the emotional toll of some of the work that's done and you know um not just casework teams but you know everybody from you know constituency staff to parliamentary staff some of the stuff that you end up working with that you never thought in you know a million years you'd end up working with no having to sit in with with caseworkers to support, you know, when the member who I was working for wasn't there or, you know, when you just want extra representation in the meeting perhaps. And, you know, you're dealing with um, with people whose lives have been upended, you know, in Afghanistan and Syria, um, you know, and, and you're, you're there trying to support them with welfare claims, with immigration claims, all of that stuff that people don't see that goes on. And, mm-hmm. you know, people who've had who absolutely traumatic experiences um, you know, supporting them through different cases and all sorts of things. So, yeah, they, they really are unsung heroes. And I, at least I hope, and I don't know if you might have seen this as um, in your role in the GMB, but hopefully during the, the pandemic has put a spotlight on MP staff and, and constituency staff, especially to show the work that they do and how many people who normally probably wouldn't have engaged with them will have engaged with them because of the pandemic. Yeah, I think that yeah, there's been a few kind of articles in the media and that sort of thing, and yeah, I think it's really good to highlight the work that is going on behind the scenes. It's kind of like this invisible workforce. I feel like who are 
doing a lot um you know and I think obviously we're not the victims of the pandemic you know that's not yeah. it's really I feel it's really important to emphasize that like the you know the victims of people who have lost loved ones who have experienced COVID themselves and have perhaps um, dealing with long COVID or yeah. the people who are on the front line of the NHS who've been in um you know battling through A&E for months years um and we know that there is a difference but it's just a case of kind of highlighting that there's all sorts of people trying to provide services during the pandemic who are under pressure and deserve yeah recognition and and if only I think it's just it would be great if there was more recognition from their bosses as well um for what they're doing absolutely and your you currently work at the at the time this podcast will go out you currently work for Sarah Owen um who I think is the the fifth member of parliament you've worked for is that right in the House of Commons <laughs> yeah yeah so you've got more experience than most uh you know seeing how different offices are set up how different people work and I think MPs offices are, are fascinating to a lot of people because they're very much based around an individual. And I don't think there's, other than perhaps in the entertainment industry or, um, you know, kind of in celebrity culture, where you have a workforce based around an individual and, and what that individual wants to do and wants to achieve. Mm. How have you how have you found it since, you say it was 2018 when you first started working in the Commons? How have you found it since then and, and the different experiences that you've had along the way? Um. It's yeah, it's really interesting. I think your comparison to the entertainment industry is right because obviously those people often have kind of PAs whose whole job is to um, work around their boss's life. Um, mm. And yeah, sometimes it is it you get that kind of experience in Parliament. Um, and I think whenever people get a job with an MP, it just enormously depends how your experience depends on the personality of your employer um, and. There probably aren't that many jobs where, um, you know, it's all make or break depending on who your boss is because we just work in such close quarters. Um, so, yeah, I've worked with with a lot of different people and I've become quite adaptable to different styles that people like. You know, the different speeches, the different ways that people like to, to like their speeches to be written or mm-hmm. um, whatever. And my first boss um, was my local MP. Um, it's called. Jim Fitzpatrick and he was the MP for Poplar and Limehouse um, which is where I live and he retired in um, the 2019 general election but when I started working for him he was uh, so he he came in in 97 and he was a minister under Blair and he was um, by the time I started working for him he was kind of not so much actively engaged in um, regular parliamentary issues he was he had his specific things that he spoke out on and he was very experienced in those things. So he didn't require that much um, from me in some ways, kind of he would write a lot of his own things. And um, it was an unusual experience because I kind of thought, oh, wow, like I, this job's a doddle. Like I barely need to, <laughs> I mean, I did obviously work hard, but there was not so much of the things I do for MPs now that, that when I was working for Jim and he was a really, um, lovely person to work for he was very encouraging very supportive Mm. and he was in a stage of his career where he just kind of wanted to develop his staff um and so that was wonderful but I and at that point I had no idea that people had bad experiences in parliament because I just thought I've got a lovely boss um (laughs) 
I love the work that I do. Um, he pays me well. Um, it's all great. You know, I had no idea that it could, the, the experiences could vary so much. And I think now when I speak to people who are wanting to get into parliament and they say, oh, what's it like working for an MP? I just always say, you know, every office is so different and it, it just depends hugely on who you're going to be working for. And it's hard. I don't like to yeah. give people a false impression i don't like to say oh you know oh god no you can't really can you because it's it's that you know it depends on the mp really is the answer isn't it it's irresponsible i feel like to um mislead people because then they could end up in a job that is really difficult and causes them a lot of stress and it's really sad you know a lot of the people who work in parliament are in their early 20s mid 20s a lot of the time because the pay is low so it's like a first kind of entry level Mm -hmm job um and just seeing people kind of get a bit crushed is is really sad and um yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of people in their late 20s who are very cynical now because Mm. they've kind of come into to this with aspirations and um ideas and you know like you say if they've not been lucky enough to 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 match with someone who you know has their kind of um their interest as well, you know, in, in developing their career. And like you say, that's, you know, part of part of what you would hope you would want to do as a member of parliament is if you've got staff working for you is to develop them, to take an interest in that. And, you know, as we know, that's not the case. And mm. in some extreme cases, and, you know, there are, um, I think you, you hear about it. Certainly when I was working in parliament, I heard a lot about, you know, you would hear, oh, that such and such is, difficult to work for or Mm. or this person's um you know they can get a bit a bit funny you know such and such work for them and they had this experience that and the the wall kind of whispers just going around and you're thinking in what other workplace in the country would you get you know common knowledge about somebody being a terrible boss you know who's abusive bullying whatever all all of that and then them still walking around and doing it without being challenged you know yeah it's a very strange one. I know you, you've had your experiences with that as well, which, you know, I'm very sorry to hear. Um, but that's something that, that I think has led to you becoming more involved with that work to challenge some of the toxic cultures in Westminster. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I had a really difficult experience um, in 2020, which was completely... Um, like devastating it was just very very crushing and I thought that my career was over and um personally it was it was just horrendous Mm. um and I was a member of the GMB and I wasn't really involved but I was a member and they helped me um and then a couple months later I was um encouraged to to be a rep so to be a shop steward for the for the GMB branch and so I trained up in that and it was it was amazing to kind of get to be behind the scenes and try and steer some of the approach to building in Parliament. And then I became the chair in August 2020, I think it was. And it's just I think it's been a really helpful um, outlet for the difficult experiences that I had in terms of trying to make sure they don't that, that they stop being allowed to happen because it, it wasn't really necessarily unique what happened to me and um mps can basically get away with what i feel like they can get away with whatever they want to do 
they're yeah. largely unaccountable um things only really come out in the media if um if a staff member has been brave enough to make a complaint go through the long process of um having their complaint investigated and then eventually it reaches the standards commissioner maybe gets spoken about in the in um in the press or they've made criminal charges to the police that's the only time mm. when you really hear about um these experiences but they happen all the time i think i always think that sexual harassment really catches the news stories but um bullying is a lot more common and it's a lot more kind of um tolerated and just part of the kind of background of working for mps um yeah that that culture of like you know it's acceptable to be you know hard on your staff or it's acceptable but because it's a high pressure environment mm. um which you know seems entirely wrong and i don't think people would without having seen it or been in that kind of environment understand how it works it, it, is there anything in particular about parliament that you think means that so many of the issues kind of exist there because it does seem like you know and i, I don't know if it's something to do with the fact there's like 650 many offices technically aren't they? they're all like separate yeah. offices under this banner and yes there's you know ipsa handle general hr and whatever it is but you know this kind of challenge of of all these individual offices led by these people who a lot of the time if you're a person who wants to go into to parliament and be an mp it's not guaranteed you're going to have any experience of managing staff at all yeah no absolutely i think um a lot of the reasons why it happens particularly in parliament is that i think people can start working as an mp just overnight like say they don't need mm -hmm. to have any experience of being in management and sometimes they've just been like activists or they've been um i don't know lawyers or whatever um not necessarily having sometimes they're just they've been focusing on their own career and moving upwards and they haven't had experience of managing people and um so some of them I do give the benefit of the doubt. It's like they haven't managed before. They don't know how to be good managers. So um, they make mistakes and they don't know how to do it better. Others, <laughs> just <laughs> that's just who they are. And they might have always operated in that way. And they might know that it's bad employment strategies, but it's how they, it's how they get a, a rise from their staff. It's how they feel like yeah. they get the best performance. And it's completely unreasonable. Like, like you say, it's, it is a high pressure environment, but that's just never an acceptable. That's never. It's never justification for bullying your staff. I, you know, I work under high pressure. It doesn't mean that I shout and swear and pressurize my colleagues. Exactly. We're adults. We just deal with pressure, and um, I think some MPs are not capable of doing that. And whenever I speak about these things, I know that I come across as very cynical and critical. Um, there are loads of great MPs I know a lot of them you know through the GMB I see loads of amazing employers at work um and that's that's wonderful to see there are there are plenty of great MPs who really do develop their staff they treat them well they know that through treating them well paying them well etc those staff will stick around they'll be loyal they'll mm -hmm. get more and more skilled and then the work of the office will become more seamless and strong because you've got long-term committed trained staff um, but for the ones that aren't great, um, yeah, they basically can get away with a lot because there isn't an overarching HR for um, MPs. So MPs are individual employers. They run their own small businesses and 
they are responsible for deciding how much their staff are paid, how much holiday we get, when we can take leave, um, responsible for approving kind of sickness and um, discussing the, you know, whether someone's performing well or whether, um, yeah, they need to have a disciplinary, things like that. And um, a lot of the time they're just, no, not a lot of the time, <laughs> I need to be more fair. Some of the time the decisions that they're making are not fair, they're based on um the whims of that mp's person you know that whether they like the person or whatever there's a lot of power in their hands and there's often not much oversight of the decisions that they're making so i think it happens particularly in parliament not just because they come in without management experience but also because they come in knowing that they can get away with a lot i think there's something about being elected to be an mp and walking into parliament um that can be a bit of a drug and oh, for it sure, yeah. makes them feel, you know, ultimately just very powerful and it and it expands their egos. And I also think that um MPs, I think particularly for women, probably less so for men, but for women, they've probably had to really scrap their way up. Like they've had to fight their way to the top to get to the position where they are. Yeah. because um, it's so difficult for women to get elected. Um and you know if it's not an all-women shortlist so they're used to kind of having to fight for themselves um and then that mentality can sometimes carry on when they become an mp and they have staff in their offices Um, yeah and that's and yeah like you say and politics and on top of that politics being very adversarial and it's you know in its nature and we understand that but it's not and i think people if you said to you know somebody on the street who who didn't kind of have that personal experience of working in politics or in parliament um, about, you know, oh, well, it's very, you know, it, it, it can be aggressive, they can be bullying, they can be, they would probably say, well, yeah, like look at PMQs, you know, that's the mm-hmm. way politics obviously is. But it's not like that when, you know, when the cameras are switched off, when, you know, um, it's kind of away from the public eye. MPs don't interact like that with each other a lot of the time. Yeah, there's some, and you've seen, everyone's seen scraps between, not scraps, but, you know, exchanges, very loud exchanges in Portcullis House or whatever (laughs) between two MPs who perhaps have had a disagreement or whatever um, and shouting at each other. But other than that, you know, a lot of the time you've got people who are publicly standing up and, you know, know, our experience will be on the Labour side of things, but it'll be the same on the other side of the house, stand up and and, and criticising the opposition, criticising the government, and then at the end of the day, going and, you know, go and having a meeting with them that's very friendly and very, you know, amicable. And and that's the way that business is done in Parliament and has been done for centuries. Mm -hmm. So... To, to say that, you know, politics is adversarial in its nature and or it'll just be because, you know, you need to have thick skin or whatever. I just feel like that's an excuse that's used to to kind of um, ignore the issues that, that a lot of staff, unfortunately, have had to face. Yeah, no, completely. It's like um, you should just be able to tolerate uh, an extremely, like, sometimes abusive working environment because your boss is very important and they're their work is very important and yeah it's not <clears throat> excuse me it's not um it's not the case at all and it's very arrogant I think to think that you know I, I hope I like to think that doctors in NHS like important you know ICU wards aren't going around screaming at each other just because <laughs> they're under pressure um I think it's just part of the power trip for some MPs that they think you know 
my staff just need to deal with this and they need to stay the long hours and they need to put up with the low pay because that's just um that's just the job and also people it's like it is a privilege to work in parliament um as in it it's an it's a wonderful job to have there are not you know there's there's 650 mps and maybe they'll have four five six staff each depending on some that will be part-time there's not like a you know loads and loads of jobs available and it is really exciting to be where politics is is being is happening and being made and i think sometimes mps might think that staff should just be like really grateful to have the job that they have and a lot of times staff mm. are because people are desperate to get into parliament and they'll put up with that sort of treatment because they think oh i should just be really grateful to be here um and it's a privilege to to be in this job and yeah there's downsides but that's what you get but and it's not it's, too sure. oh yeah exactly and especially if you're from a background where you think oh my god you know <laughs> you might have been the first in your family to go to university or you might have been the first mm-hmm. let alone be in parliament and you probably you know you think to yourself wow you know this is i'm, I'm walking through a I'm walking through a film set essentially every day. Yeah. I'm walking through somewhere that is, you know, regarded as. And I think we had a great interview for this podcast series with David Kuznet, who was the chief speechwriter to Bill Clinton, um, and he said, you know, the whole experience of of seeing Parliament in in London and and in Westminster and see the, the grandeur of it, you feel like as somebody coming into the country, you know, he's an American and coming in the country and experience that is like, wow, this is, this is the place, mm. you know, this is the heartbeat of democracy and it, it's got that feel to it. So of course it, you know, especially when it's your own country, you've grown up and hearing about it and learning about it and you get yeah. there, you're going to think, Oh God, this is, you know, I'm, God, I'm lucky to be here. I better not push my luck. I better not, you know, I better not ask for basic human rights. Yeah. You know, yeah. I can't, can't afford those kind of luxuries. I'm, I'm lucky to be here. Um, and then you get and, the people who you will have seen around who look like they were born to be there. <laughs> the people who, yeah, yeah. They'll just walk around like they are MPs. I think a lot of the time, like at the moment, it's really important, obviously, to be wearing um, face masks around Parliament because mm-hmm. um, COVID levels have been quite high and there's a lot of frontline staff, like catering staff and um, other kind of, people providing essential services who um might be more vulnerable and i see quite a lot of young staff just like ignoring the mask um, requirements and i just think you just feel like you uh you deserve to be in parliament you don't need to follow these other rules because um you've got that sense of entitlement and it just really oh it really drives me up the wall yeah you can tell who those ones are if you go to any of the um the many food serving places in Parliament, you know, stand the queue behind people just from the basic way people interact with other parliamentary staff. People who are there just like you who do a job, um, you know, serving food in the cafeteria, working on the till, um, you know, people who are security staff as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember hearing a story from one member of the security staff who was screamed at by a lady um, when he asked her, you know, the classic thing, you know, can you put your pass, make sure you're wearing your pass. Um, And it was a member of parliament's wife um, who, you know, again, felt like they had a right to be there an inalienable right to be there. And that that was their, you know, birthright and all the rest of it. And yeah, yeah, very, very disappointing to see that kind of behavior, but I guess not surprising when it's a place where, 
where powerful people go and where people who want power go as well as mm. people who want to try and use that power for good. Um, and you like to try and think that the majority of people there are there for the right reasons. Mm. Uh, but like you say, you can't help but um, but noticing those people um, who always have double-breasted jackets on as well, strangely. <laughs> a strange thing to see someone under the age of um, 50 in a double-breasted jacket. But yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> suddenly, suddenly there's about... 20 of them in every corridor so yeah um, <laughs> that's enough about enough about them anyway but your experience in getting into parliament now you got there um you know at, at university because you went to the university of glasgow is that right and yeah you say that you weren't particularly active in student politics you weren't you weren't studying politics or anything you did theology um Talk, talk to us a little bit about how you ended up in politics, how you got into it. Yeah, well, I um, I was kind of very politically engaged um, from when I was a teenager and I knew that I was Labour and um, I didn't join the party until, I, until Freshers' Week. But before I started uni, I watched this documentary on BBC and it was called um, Young Brighton on the Right, I think it was. Um, right. it was on the BBC and it was it was covering um, the Cambridge University Conservative Association and it was just the the most terrifying portrayal of student politics and how all these people <laughs> felt like they were in a mini Westminster and their careers were starting while they were at uni and wow. um, it was obviously an intense version because it's Cambridge and, and a lot mm-hmm. of people you know Tory MPs will start there but it made me think oh my gosh student politics is absolutely mental um (laughs) so I vowed to not get involved in labor at all at university and I didn't um yeah I I wasn't involved in my university labor club um or kind of the student union stuff or um local labor like the the branch or the um and I I'm really really thankful for that because I think I had a very um, rich university experience which then has contributed to my work now because I you know had other experiences I got really involved in a Christian social justice society called um, Just Love which helped kind of channeled students into doing volunteering and um, fundraising and learning about how to pursue social justice in our careers and um, mm-hmm. ethical living things like that that was really enriching for me um and yeah I study theology and English and I think it's really important that people know you don't have to study politics to work in parliament yeah I think people a lot of the time I hear people talking about political theory or sometimes there's discourse on Twitter about you know you should know your theory because I I don't know much political theory and it really doesn't matter like it's about people's real lives and it's about understanding how decisions policy decisions that are made in parliament can have an impact on your next door neighbors or whatever you don't need to know political theory or studied ppe to do that and i think sometimes maybe even that the study of ppe like when i think about people like the prime minister and jacob reese mogg and others they seem quite distanced from reality and they're Mm. just very kind of this is my ideology and i'm not going to budge no matter what people are experiencing like yeah anyway um so through my through just lives a social justice group i started to organize some kind of political engagement events to encourage students 
um, to get engaged. I did one around, I remember Brexit and 2015 election. And then after university, I, uh, well, during uni, I'd wanted to go into the media. I thought I wanted to do journalism or okay. um, script writing. And then I sort of started moving towards politics and thinking, oh, actually, I'd really love to work for an MP. Um, and during the year after I graduated, I kind of worked for some a couple of sort of um, charity groups who weren't official charities. And then I got a job in June of 2018, so a year after my graduation, with my local MP. And that mainly came about because I'd started getting involved in my local Labour Party. So in Tower Hamlets, we had local elections in um, the spring of 2018. And I'd started kind of yeah just going out on the doors with my councillors and I love that I love the campaigning and that's kind of what led to me getting the job with my MP I was engaged in my community involved in a church in my um in my part of Tower Hamlets and that kind of is what I I decided actually I really want to get involved in local politics because that's what I can see is is making a difference to people in my neighborhood yeah um, and so yeah, that's what that's what got me in there. And I still feel so, so, so fortunate to have been given that job with, with my MP. He wasn't looking for someone with previous parliamentary experience. A lot of the time there's this like vicious um cycle of MPs only wanting to hire people who have had parliamentary experience. So it's like how can you start? Where can you exactly. start? From? But yeah. he he wasn't bothered about that. And um yeah it's it felt like too good to be true really um and you and sitting since then you've been um selected to be and uh, you we run to be a labor councillor in in tower hamlets oh yeah yeah that's that's brilliant and is that in the may elections yeah that's this yeah. may yeah this may fantastic because he must have a load of a uh, campaign on the side so finish <laughs> finish work working in um in politics helping constituents helping the uh, the member who you work for and then log off and then go and do it all again and um, yeah <laughs> yeah it's funny but it, I think it's really fun as well I think it's so special to be able to be involved locally um, as opposed to kind of an abstract constituency both yeah. are great both like are um, really interesting but I think yeah, being able to be um, involved with the people that you know in the areas that really matter to you is such an amazing privilege. Um, it must help keep you grounded as well, because obviously national politics can be sometimes, like you say, this this great big um, exchange of, of big ideas and ideologies and theories and, you know, on a really macro level. And then, but you're actually seeing on the ground, you know, I, I've always believed that, you know, MPs that or the best MPs are those who regularly go out campaigning and still go out door knocking mm. and are hearing from people on the doorstep and are hearing those problems um, firsthand. So you being able to go out and campaign at the same time must be really beneficial to you in your role as well in Parliament. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I hope it is. I think it does um, enlighten things and especially hearing from people who don't necessarily feel like they have a political voice um so maybe their stories of struggling with uh, awful housing and having you know mm -hmm. pest infestations and um not being able to get a suitable house like tower hamlets has something like a twenty thousand people waiting list for social housing 
Wow. Um, that sort of thing isn't necessarily talked about that much and you don't in parliament you wouldn't necessarily hear people talking about the individual stories that make up those 20,000 people um but yeah I think it really helps to to get like to see the people individually and not just be thinking as you say on a macro level and that's what really bothers me I think by listening to people like Jacob Rees-Mogg or whatever when he's talking mm. business questions about his kind of grand political ideas and it doesn't relate to, to individual people and what their experience is um, so I think being a local councillor if done right um, should really help to inform people about what's going on on the ground um, some local councillors probably just have their fingers in their ears um, <laughs> because you know they they then end up being maybe Tory MPs and you just think where have you like yeah what have you just not been listening to to your residents and your constituents for all these years it's very strange yeah yeah absolutely. and and people if you if if they're driven by ideology can often ignore what they're seeing in front of them can't it? you know you can often yeah. think well this is my ideology this is what i believe even if everything around me is telling me perhaps i'm not right about this certain policy or this certain way of doing things then you know i believe that i'm right regardless because yeah. that's the way that i think so yeah I, I can totally understand that and 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 you've you you do work with uh christians on the left the group as well is that right you're the chulo for the because because they're a, a socialist society yeah um, yeah I, um, to the labor party so i'm uh, kind of been a member of christians on the left since i was at uni they actually helped me to um, realise that I wanted to get involved in politics and kind of seeing the role that left-wing Christians could play in shaping political dialogue and um, running campaigns that highlight the difficulties that people are going through. Um, so the Chulo role is quite new and I haven't um, got too stuck into that yet because it's, yeah, it's been a bit tricky during the pandemic, but... Yeah. in terms of the, the work they do it's so helpful to get their perspective and to, to as a so I grew up Christian I'm Anglican um my dad's a vicar so I've always kind of been surrounded by um that way you know quite a, I feel like quite a left-wing theological way of thinking mm. and um that's what I think really motivates me and and drives me in my politics I think the understanding that I have of um, Jesus being this figure who basically brought transformation to people's lives um, through his messages of even if, regardless I suppose of whether people listening believe that Jesus was um, was the son of God his messages yeah. of radical kind of what I see as quite socialist thinking um, mm. in terms of up, up and turning over the turning over the um, structures of the the rich and powerful and the poor and needy like kind of turning that it on its head and challenging corruption and challenging um, exploitation and um, greed and selfishness and encouraging a kind of much setting out this vision of um, a kingdom where everyone is inherently equal and actually I believe that you know God has a special preference for the poor and for the marginalized and disenfranchised. Um, those people are kind of at the forefront. I think that's just so radical and continues to be after 2000 
plus years. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of what I think I'm trying to achieve and what Christians on the left are trying to achieve is set, is just seeing those values that Jesus has set out in the parables that he taught, like the Good Samaritan or feeding the 5,000, things like that, that maybe we've heard in school assemblies, but haven't necessarily thought of in an adult context. Like that's mm. what we're trying to achieve in politics. So that's why Christians on the left have campaigned for, um, for example, they had a campaign called Patriots Pay Tax um, a few years ago, which was highlighting the importance of cracking down on tax evasion and tax avoidance, both of those, and helping people, like encouraging people to celebrate why they pay tax and what that tax goes towards and how the super rich and businesses need to pay their tax so that it helps the most needy people access you know their services i think that's that's so cool and it is a biblical principle and i think also they really encourage integrity in politicians and making sure the political dialogue is respectful and effective but also very yeah honest and that's thing that i believe is is really important like politicians whether christian or not being gracious um being keen to listen and respect who they're speaking to and if they disagree like that kind of principle of disagreeing well and working out how to achieve things constructively like what you were saying earlier about how a lot of things that are achieved in parliament are achieved through um respectful discussion behind the scenes even if on tv they seem like they're always at each other's throats it's important behind the scenes to have those discussions which are collaborative and seeking to just achieve the best not for your personal ego but for the people that you're representing exactly um, yeah to- tolerance isn't it it's just having that you know yeah, tolerance yeah and I, I think there's a lot of really radical stuff in in the four gospels in the new testament which um have inspired the labor movement across the years obviously i Keir hardy was a christian socialist mm-hmm. And we've got a great tradition of, of Christian socialists. My, one of my favourites is Gordon Brown. Um, he's one of my heroes. And yeah, it was good. Gordon Brown's um, was his father a preacher? I think he was, yeah. wasn't he? Yeah, his father's a preacher, and um, he has always fought, you know, obviously against like child poverty and fighting now for um, a global vaccination program. Thinking about our global neighbours, not just about what's best for our country. I think that is so powerful and that shows a different level of thinking to what motivates Boris Johnson. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember when I, I don't mean to ramble on, when I was in no, um, when I was in year 10 or 11, I learned in RE about um, about the NHS and the welfare state. So my, I went to a Christian school called St Mary Redcliffe in Bristol and it might seem a bit strange that we learned about the welfare state through religious education but i remember learning that it was built on um the principles set out in matthew 25 which is a story about um parable of the sheep and the goats and it talks about when you were when i was hungry you fed me when i was sick you healed me when i was um cold you clothed me things like that providing the needs that people have providing um support for the needs that people have and that's what the welfare state was built around. And I just thought that was so beautiful. It's something, it's the most, it's the most treasured thing that we have. It's not just the NHS, but our whole welfare system and how um, we care for people supposedly from cradle to grave. And that's such a powerful labour 
institution has obviously been picked apart gradually by the Tories over the decades and that's just horrible to see but I was so inspired when I heard that it had been set up by those kind of Christian principles and um, various other Labour politicians since then have inspired me as well and I think there's so much more that Christian socialists can achieve to make Britain a more equal, generous, compassionate society Um, and yeah Christians on left do amazing stuff to try and encourage that it's it's great hearing you talk about how your personal faith and you know your experience with it has steered that and steered your your kind of morals and it it is interesting because people don't I think a lot of the time feel not necessarily feel comfortable bringing their religion and their politics together or you know their faith and their politics together but like you say it has been the bedrock of of so many people's desire to change you know, the world and to try and help other people is their faith. And and that's something that I've come to, I mean, even as a as a cynical atheist, it's something that I've come to kind of respect and, you know, in people with faith. And as you say, you know, regardless of um of whether I believe, you know, Jesus was the son of God or or whether I believe there's any kind of divine uh, you know, reality there. Yeah. Those those principles and those, you know, um values that are set out. That, that I talked about, you know, I, because I used to get very angry, you know, when I was a young kind of guy talking about, not that I'm, not that I'm old now, but, you know, I used to get really angry, like when I was younger about, oh, you know, people bring that, you know, they're only really motivated because they think they're going to go to hell or they're only really motivated because of this or whatever, yeah. you know, and actually when you sit down, and you talk with people and you, you do a bit of that tolerance, like you've talked about and you have yeah. tolerance, and you listen to people. It's interesting because, you know, there's so much more that you you agree with, and not to be to be cliche, but you know, Joe Cox had it bang on. You know, and she said we have far much more in common than that which divides us because you do genuinely agree on you know those those wider principles, which why I find it fascinating when you talk to kind of American kind of right wing conservative um, Christians, yeah. you know, about their interpretation of um of of Jesus's word and how that is sometimes quite the opposite of what they believe in yeah. um, in their it's politics isn't it and it, you obviously yeah. get them here as well you know the yeah exactly yeah right-wing evangelicals um and i think it is really sad there's always you know there is a broad um spread of like uh beliefs within christians about you know heaven and hell and about social issues like gay marriage abortion things like that there's going to be differences of opinion so i think it's always good to um to remember that one christian might you know christians that you meet at work might be different from the ones who really annoyed you at uni i got really aggravated by some <laughs> christians at uni um but also in terms of the trade union movement like like you say we've all got a lot of us in, in labor will have the same belief that um all workers should be treated with fundamental respect and mm-hmm. treated with dignity and should have a um also a, they deserve a good work-life balance where they have a rewarding job, but they also have a, a fuller life that is important beyond work. And for me, I think I'm really motivated by feeling like everyone, all of my members in the GMB deserve to have that dignity and deserve to ha- to be treated with respect in a workplace. And I feel like we're sort of like a, like a family and yeah. we need to look out for each other. We need to care for each other and we deserve 
to have that fundamental respect and a lot of that does come from um my christian beliefs that we are all created equal that i am just as equal i'm i'm equal to um boris johnson and equal to my boss and equal to the, mm-hmm. the people who clean the floors um, at night time that's kind of a basic thing and, and you'll probably share that regardless of even though you're not a christian you know yeah. those are values that we share and i think yeah the trade union movement i just want to encourage people i always want to encourage you know people whether obviously um labor or not labor political or non-political christian not christian whatever to join a trade union because everyone fundamentally deserves that respect at work and deserves Mm -hmm. to also have a life outside of work so that you can you can yeah have a full human life which isn't dominated by um your productivity and how you're doing in your career absolutely well words to live by and that's uh, a fantastic place for us to uh to wrap things up i think jenny um thank you for taking the time to come along and to chat to us um it's been fascinating and i'm sure our listeners will agree uh, with me that you've been an excellent guest and given us loads of insight into your work in Parliament. I wish you all the best for the future and also the best of luck for the elections in May. Thank you. Oh, thank you, James. Appreciate it. Lovely to be on. Take care now. Thank you. Bye. listening to people behind politics i've been your host james matthewson and i'd like to thank our producer charlie hornsby don't forget to subscribe so that you can access the latest weekly episodes as and when they're released thank you